You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. As we get started, I've got a video to, to start us off. Watch this video. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without faults in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace. He has purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Here's what I want us to do to get us started this morning. You got handouts in front of you, I hope, uh, for our study. What I want you to do is I want you just to take a minute with that handout that, and a piece of, of that piece of paper and a pen if you have one, and I want you to answer this question, who am I? Answer that question on your piece of paper with a pen or a pencil if you're able to. Jot it down on your phone if that's easier. Just answer that question, who am I? And also complete this sentence, I am. That's the way you want to answer the question. I am dot, dot, dot. Fill in that blank. Take a minute and do that. So here's the deal, guys. How we answer that question and how we complete that sentence 
in our worst moments and in our best moments. It says a lot about our maturity in our walk with Jesus. For instance, in our worst moments when, when we've uh, failed to meet the mark, right? Uh, when we failed at something or, or when our struggle with sin becomes uh, like nearly unbearable for us, we might say things like, man, I'm such a failure. I say, I'm a loser. I'm hopeless. These things are never going to change. I'm unlovable. I'm unwanted. These are things that we say about ourselves deep down inside. But, but in our best moments, when things are going right, when things are hitting on all eight cylinders, when we've succeeded, when we've accomplished a great task, or when we get something that we've always wanted, we might say something like, man, I'm successful, I'm successful right? I'm, I'm, I'm lovable. I'm, I'm desirable. I, I feel wanted. I, I feel respectable. Seems more bearable to live in those moments, right? It's easier to live in the easier seasons, in that second headspace when things feel like they're hitting on all eight cylinders. But, but the problem with, with, uh, with either of those moments is that uh, both of them are based on my performance, right? Based on my performance. In other words, uh, what I do has a tendency to drive or influence what I believe to be true about who I am. Functionally, the way that I behave, the way that I act, and the things that I do drives and influences what I believe about who I am deep down inside. What this is called, this is called performance-driven identity, which is also closely tied to something called legalism, which is also closely tied to something else called works-based righteousness. We all fall into these traps. If I base who I believe I am upon what I do right or what I do wrong, then the bad news for me and for you when you do this is that we wind up living in this cycle of performance-based identity where, where, like I said, my belief about who I am at the core is driven by the things that I do. And the worst outcome of this, um, this kind of belief system is that I become a legalist uh, who, who lives every waking moment of my life trying to balance the scales of my broken identity. That's what I wind up doing. I live my life that way, trying to balance the scales of my broken identity by earning enough stars on my chart to offset all of the red check marks on the other side. Maybe this will help. I want you to imagine this with me, okay? You need to close your eyes, you can. Imagine that you come upon this little boy, okay? So you see a little boy in your, in your imagination, and he's sitting in a house all by himself. And, 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 and upon entering the house, you ask this little boy who he is. You're like, hey, what's your name? Who, who are you? And he answers by describing his poor life. He explains that he has little to no money. Nobody loves him. He's worn out from working hard every day just to make ends meet. But then as he explains this, uh, he also brightens up just a little bit, right? He brightens up like his countenance shifts. He, he brightens up a little bit. And he explains that even though he's really poor, whatever money he does earn, he donates some of that to other poor kids just like himself. And then the other portion he spends on whatever he thinks will make his heart happy. He's telling you this story. This is how he explains who he believes he is. 
And throughout this process, what he says he's learned is that he can get some people to love him if he buys them expensive meals, right? We've all probably been there a little bit too. And that, in the end, means that all of his hard work for him, he thinks it's worth it because it makes him feel like a winner. You got that picture in your head? Had that conversation with this kid? I want you to imagine this too at the same time. I want you to imagine that as this little boy is explaining all of this to you, you are carefully examining his poor condition. And to your surprise, he's actually living in what the majority of the world would call a mansion. And not only does he live in a mansion, but he also has a very loving family. And to top it all off, his entire family is loaded beyond belief. Like, they got more money than anybody else has in the entire world. They're actually the wealthiest family on the face of the planet. Confused now, right? Trying to figure out what the heck is going on. What happened in this kid's life to make him believe that that's who he is when in reality, this is who he is, right? You're asking yourself, why does this little boy think so poorly of himself? Why does he believe that he's unlovable? Why does he believe he needs to work so hard to earn more money and buy himself a new group of friends? Why why, why does he live this way? Why does he believe he's so cursed? Why doesn't he believe how blessed he really is? This is what you begin to think if you encountered this situation. And the answer to that question becomes clear immediately. He's been deceived, right? He's been deceived. In fact, he's believed lies about himself for so long that he's stuck in this pattern of trying to earn all the things which he already has, and he's doing all of this so he can become the person that he already is. Do you you see how crazy this is? This is precisely what the Apostle Paul dives into in the opening verses of the book of Ephesians. In fact, this is literally the point of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. In these first three verses that we're going to study today, the first three verses, mind you, today, and then for the rest of the first three chapters for the foreseeable future for us, because we're going to spend roughly nine to 12 months in the book of Ephesians, The Apostle Paul is going to drive home for the rest of us, as we read it, these truths of who we are in Christ Jesus. He's going to answer the question, who am I? He's going to finish the sentence, I am. He's going to do this over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? He's going to do that because he knows that if we're ever going to begin to live our lives in freedom and maturity, then the only way that we're going to do this is to first have a correct understanding of the mansion that we've been blessed with in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like these first three verses, at first glance may not appear to be all that astounding, but I can assure you, I can assure you that they are. You might be sitting here, you might be thinking, I've read those verses a thousand times. It's just a greeting 
pastor, but what's the deal? Why are you so jacked up? Might be the first time you've heard these first three verses, and you might be thinking, okay, this is cool and everything, but can we get down to the real meat? Let me assure you. Let me assure you that, that, that there is more stuff packed in these three little verses than meets the eye. I feel like I could spend three weeks on these three verses, so let's try not to do that. These, these first three verses are more than just the opening lines or, 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 or the opening greeting in a short letter. They're, they're much more than that. Though they are that, they're much more than that. The Apostle Paul wastes no time at all in getting down to the business of laying down some of the richest theological phrases ever written on the topic of our identity as people who are truly blessed in every sense of the word. He wastes no time diving into that. In short, what the Apostle Paul does here is he impresses the truth, these truths on his listeners and on us this morning as we study it, that you and I are blessed beyond belief. That is the main point of these first three verses. You and I are blessed beyond belief. We are blessed with a brand new calling. We are blessed with new titles, blessed with grace and peace. You and I are blessed with a spiritual inheritance that will knock your flipping socks off. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Simply put, you and I are blessed. This is our identity. If we've trusted in Christ, we are not cursed, we are blessed. Okay? We are not outcasts. We are blessed sons and daughters who've been set apart for God's love. We are not enemies of God. We are blessed family members who've been adopted by God's grace. We are not left here like rotting corpses. We are blessed with a new life that lasts for all of eternity. So take a look at this first category with me. Number one, first category of blessing is that we are blessed with a new calling. The PowerPoint guys are uh, eons ahead of me. They're trying to tell me I should be done preaching now. Uh, I will tell you now that I am... Not done preaching. I started by, I started by telling you what I'm going to tell you. I started by telling you what I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you what I want to tell you. And then in the end, I'm going to tell you what I just told you. Just so you know, that's, that's the way this is going to go. So I know y'all are trying to hurry me up. I'm doing the best I can. This is our identity, right? I love you guys. Number one. Number one, we, we are blessed with a new calling, okay? This is in verse one. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep the train rolling. Um, we are blessed with a new calling. Uh, at one point, every one of us has followed, think about this, we, every one of us has followed the calling of the desires of our hearts into destruction. Every one of us has walked that path at one point in time or another. We desire to be loved, and so what we've done is we've followed the calling of a, of a new lover, Right? into the mess and devastation of relational and, and even sexual sin. Most of us have walked that path. We desire comfort. And so, and so sometimes we follow the calling of seclusion into, uh, fr from relationships, right? Because we desire comfort and relationships are messy and hard. We follow the calling of seclusion from relationships into the loneliness of relational disconnectedness, right? Or isolation. Some of us have, have desired power and influence. This is one that I struggle with a lot. struggle with all these, but this is one I struggle with a lot. We desire power and influence, and so we wind up following the calling of a new career. We fight our way up the corporate ladder, only to find out that power and influence really is a rotten meal. Right? We've all followed the calling of our sinful impulses, We've all followed the, the calling of our selfish desires. 
And on the back end of following those callings, we've all experienced the identity displacement or the identity corrosion that following that calling of sin actually produces in our hearts and lives. It's no different with the Apostle Paul. Think about this. Before Paul met Jesus, he was known as Saul. Now, Saul was named after one of the tallest and possibly most vain of all Israel's kings, King Saul. You'll find him in the Old Testament. And up until Paul, who was first Saul, it's a little confusing, hope you track with me. Up until he met Jesus, he was no different. You read the account of the Apostle Paul's life. When he was previously Saul, he was proud of his long list of religious accomplishments. He pursued power and prestige by assaulting Christians violently. Um, he longed for the comfort that success would bring him. He was energized by the respect that his um, accomplishments won for him inside of his circle of religious friends. This was who the Apostle Paul used to be when he was called Saul. And then one day, as Saul was following this calling of his sinful and selfish flesh, his sinful and selfish desires, he runs right into Jesus on a road called Damascus. Jesus is like, yo, why are you persecuting me? Here's the thing, like you and I, you and I can be duped into believing that we're doing the Lord's work when in reality we are more like vicious wolves who are driven by the calling to quench our deep thirst, to be loved, respected, comforted, needed, and wanted. This is where Saul was on that day when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when Jesus shows up, he literally blinded Saul and knocked him right off his high horse into the dirt, right onto the ground, right? This is what God does to us when we are in our pride, blinded. He blinds him, knocks him off into the dirt. Now Saul, who's not yet Paul, is in a posture of brokenness and blindness in that pile of dirt. Saul, the vain sinful legalist in that moment became Paul, the man who was cut down to size by the grace of God. That's who Saul became, Paul. That's who writes this letter. That's who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. It's absolutely mind-blowing if you think about it, right? It's who this guy was, and this is who he is today. In a moment, this proud man became a broken man with a new calling. This is why the Apostle Paul begins his letter with the words, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He literally says, I am blessed with a new calling. I'm no longer Saul. My name is Paul. I'm not a man of, of self-imposed importance. I'm a man of small stature. This is what he's saying. His name, Paul, actually means a man of small stature. The name Saul actually means a man of large stature. It's just interesting how those things go together. God in his providence makes those things happen in our lives, right? Apostle Paul says, man, my ego has been shredded. This is the implication of his introduction of himself. My ego has been shredded. I used to be a murderer of Christians. Now I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm a person who's been sent by God with a message of good news for the downtrodden. I'm no longer confident in what I can accomplish or, or what I can make happen. I'm confident in the new calling that I have because it is by the will of God that I have been called. I am blessed with a new calling, and I want you to experience that too. That's the implication of Paul's introduction of himself. 
And for me, man, sometimes I struggle with believing that I am, in fact, blessed beyond my wildest dreams. Anybody else here struggle with that? Wonder, man, am I really blessed? It doesn't feel like I'm blessed beyond my wildest dreams. And when I think of myself, I struggle with who I used to be. I struggle with, with knowing who I used to be. It's even harder when I behave like the person that I used to be. When I behave like a castaway. When I, be, when I behave like an enemy of Christ. When I, when I behave like a sinner, right? When I behave that way, my tendency is to try to prove that I'm better than that by running through my checklist of right things done to tip the scales back towards balance. You ever try to do that too? It's hard for me to hold on to the truth that I am blessed. I am blessed with the new calling in Christ Jesus. And my new calling, just like your new calling, if you are in Christ Jesus, is that of a man of little stature on my own. I'm a man of little stature on my own. There's nothing important or fantastic about me on my own. On my own, I would make a shipwreck of everything. But because Jesus, right? But because Jesus, but by God's grace, biggest but in all of scripture, I say it all the time, but because Jesus saw fit to save me and because I belong to him now and because his spirit powerfully works in me, and if you share that, then this is you too, right? You can be encouraged with this. Then we are his mouthpieces, you and I are blessed with a new calling. Is that you? Have you experienced that new calling away from that old life and into the new life? And the second category of blessing that I notice in this text is also in verse 1. We are blessed with new titles. We are blessed with new titles. And I don't know about you, but, but I have a tendency to call myself names. Some of you may be better than I am at this, but I have a tendency to call myself names. It's hard for me to articulate them because I don't always notice them. But I struggle with calling myself names, right? I give myself titles that don't belong to me. I call myself stupid, call myself insecure, call myself inferior, call myself by all sorts of titles that don't belong to me. And then what happens is, again, I work hard to earn a different title or to prove that I'm not really the title that I believe I am. You ever do that? Isn't that whack? That deep down inside you believe you're that and then you do all this work trying to prove that you are not what you believe you are? It's crazy. Like, we start off by defining ourselves by our own words, right? We define ourselves by the things we say about ourselves and then we take it into our hands to go work really hard to prove that we're not that person. It's a broken cycle of insanity when it comes to this identity displacement that we all wrestle with that Paul is confronting. You ever believe things like this, like, like you're unlovable, and then you work hard to make someone else love you so that you can prove that you are, in fact, lovable? Ever believe that, that you are a victim? The poor, kind of the poor, pitiful me game? Everybody's against me. Nobody likes me. And then you work hard every day to prove to yourself or to other people really in reality try to prove to God that you are not a victim, but instead you're a winner. And the Apostle Paul wants to establish early on that we have a new identity in Christ Jesus. We are seated with Christ in a mansion so full of blessings that if you and I could grasp it, it would blow the doors off of any momentary pursuit of happiness in this life. We are blessed with 
new titles that we should be proclaiming over ourselves and then operating out of. This is the way we should live is out of what God says about us and not what we say about us. Can anybody say amen to that? Like, wouldn't you rather live out of what God says about you than what you say about you? Yeah, like, I want what I say about me to be what God says about me. That's what I want. That's what I want for you guys, too. That's what the Apostle Paul wants here. Blow the doors off of our lives. That's why the Apostle Paul says this. Listen to this. He says, to the saints. Oh, that's huge. To the saints who are in Ephesus. That's huge, too. And are faithful. That's crazy. In Christ Jesus. Another translation might say it this way. To the faithful saints in Christ Jesus in Ephesus. This statement would have been scandalous. Think about this with me for a minute. I'm hoping I can unpack this for us quickly. This statement would have been scandalous for the people in the Ephesian church. Because Ephesus, think about this, track with me. Ephesus was one of the five largest cities in that area. One of the five largest cities. And it boasted of some of the most horrific sins known to mankind. Think about this. In the culture of Ephesus, sexual sin of every kind. I don't have to list them. But there should be some that pop up in your head immediately that are more horrific, you might say, than others, okay? Sexual sin of every kind was rampant and public and popular in Ephesus. Power-hungry, abusive leadership was the name of the game for business in Ephesus. Sorcery and witchcraft, if you go back to the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul did ministry in Ephesus, one of the first things that happened as proof of their repentance, as people started burning all their witchcraft and sorcery books. Lots of money going up in flames. Huge industry coming down, crumbling because the gospel was preached. Right? Sorcery and witchcraft were some of the major money-making trades of the culture in Ephesus. If anybody struggled with negative self-talk, it would have been the Ephesian Christians who had been saved out of this devastating and disgusting culture. Think about where you've been. Think about the lifestyle that God has saved you out of for those of you that are in Christ, for those of you that are, have not yet believed. And this is an invitation to you of the lifestyle that you're in, knowing that God can move you out of that and into a completely different life because he radically transforms. Listen, God doesn't come in and say, this is who you are to leave you in your old life. God doesn't come in and say, this is who you are to then leave you in that old life. When he makes a declaration or proclamation over you saying, you are my son or my daughter, you are loved, you are chosen, you are my possession. He does not say those things to leave you outcast outside the city like somebody else. He doesn't do that. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of what's taking place in this passage and that Paul is proclaiming to us. Who better? Who better to remind these folks in Ephesus of their new titles than the Apostle Paul, right? If any one individual had an excuse or a reason to struggle with negative self-talking titles, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? You think about his story again. But Paul, what he wants to do is he wants to remind these young believers to trust in their newfound identity. He wants to remind them that they are not unfaithful outcasts who are facing damnation. They're saints. This word saints is... It's amazing. He calls them saints, knowing that in some regard, these people still struggle with their old behavior from their old life, and yet he calls them saints. Saints means holy and set apart. He's saying you are 
holy and set apart. You are people who've been set apart for the love of God for all of eternity. You are faithful because the blood of Christ has redeemed you and the spirit of Christ lives within you and the spirit of Christ is animating your faithful walk. This is what Paul's saying to them. You are not failures. You are trustworthy. You are trustworthy because of Christ's performance, not because of your performance. You're trustworthy because of the trustworthiness of Christ's performance at the cross, which enables you to now live in a trustworthy way. We don't live in a way trying to earn those titles. We live out of those titles in a way that is faithful because the Spirit of God has made us that. When I realize that my performance does not dictate my right standing with God, but that my right standing with God is dictated by His declaration, His decision over me. And when that happens, when that really begins to happen deep down inside of you, you and I, man, we, we come to life and we want to live like people who are actually alive. I realize that I, I am set apart for God's love. And regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I fear, I am free to live and to love obediently to the commands of God because I now desire to live up to the new title that I've been given. Have you tasted that kind of freedom? Ask yourself that. Have you tasted that kind of freedom? Have you tasted the freedom that the blessing of a new title brings into your life? Or are you still living in a place where you're trying to earn that which you already have and become who you already are? And number three, we are blessed with reconciliation. We are blessed with reconciliation. It comes out of verse two. Sometimes I feel so unworthy of God's grace and the peace that uh, I experience with my Father because of the cross of Christ. And, and in one sense, man, like, I, I really am undeserving of God's grace and peace, right? Get that? God's grace is unearned a favor. God's mercy is withholding that which um, we actually deserve. In one sense, I, I, like all of us, are undeserving of that grace and the peace that comes out of all that. And I have lived, if you know me, you know my life, and I have lived as one of God's worst enemies. I have done what is detestable in his sight. I have prostituted myself out to every whim and desire of my sinful flesh. I've lived hatefully towards God. I've blasphemed him and cursed his name with my words and my actions in every way imaginable. But God in his rich grace... God in his rich grace made the gospel clear to me. He saved me. He's transformed me from being his enemy and an object of his wrath into his son, object of his love. I made him to be my enemy and he made me to be his son. Get that. I made him to be my enemy and he made me to be his Son, can you say that from a deep sense of understanding? Have you received that yet? I've made him to be my enemy, but he made me to be his son. You and I are blessed with grace and peace, guys. Apostle Paul could say the same thing, right? He too had experienced the same amazing grace that produces peace between enemies. And out of that rich experiential understanding 
of his own identity in Christ, the, the Apostle Paul reminds the believers at Ephesus that they too were now identified as recipients of grace and peace. And therefore, they were blessed with being reconciled to God the Father. Reconciled to God the Father. This picture um, is even more nuanced than that. This is where I want to spend a little bit of time. This picture is even more nuanced than what I just explained to you. That is the height of the doctrine, for sure, of reconciliation, right? I made myself to be his enemy, but he made me to be his son. That is the, the greatest way you can describe it, but to bring it down to grassroots level and ground level for us and to, uh, and to just kind of get into our culture and say, this is what it looks like, here's what was taking place. When Paul uses this greeting, catch this, he actually uses the favorite greeting of two different cultures and mashes them together. He uses the favorite greeting of two cultures that were at war with each other, mashes them together, and uses them to say hello. The Jewish culture on one hand and the Gentile culture on the other hand both used half of this greeting to greet one another. Now, I know we here may not grasp the concept of the war, the enmity, the hatred, the violence that was there between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews owned this greeting where they would say peace to you as they met you. And the Gentiles owned the greeting grace to you when they met you. This is how radical. This is how radical this greeting is. Think of it like this. Think of it in terms of a white supremacist group and the Antifa group having their own greeting. And one of those other groups trying to use their greeting. What kind of war do you think would break out? Becoming clear, right? This is happening in our culture now. This is very similar to what was happening there. This is how radical this greeting is. And the Spirit's provision through the Apostle Paul, he uses both of these greetings from these two warring cultures. And what he does is he matches them into one greeting to illustrate and to paint the picture of how powerful God's grace and peace are in reconciling or bringing together two parties that had previously been at war with one another. This is what God's amazing grace does. God's amazing grace makes us sons and daughters instead of enemies, friends. God's amazing grace brings peace to the war between us and our Father in heaven. We are reconciled into one peace-filled household of faith by the grace of God through the performance of the work of Christ who died at the cross so that every person from every tribe, every tongue, every nation could be reconciled under a new identity. This means that people from every so-called race, every so-called ethnic background, every so-called social background has been united, has actually been reunited into the family of God by the performance of who? By the performance of Christ alone. You and I don't perform to make ourselves reconciled to God. God does the reconciling work for us. This is amazing grace. We sing about that today in worship. This is what we sing about. Let me paint the picture this way. Do you imagine the radical nature of the peace that this grace produces by imagining this? I talked about the white supremacist groups in Antifa earlier. Think about it this way. What if you imagine the white supremacist group and this Antifa group laying down their lives for one another rather than viciously going to war against each other? Imagine people who previously held on to their public displays of statues that are icons of terror in the lives of others. 
deciding to actually take them down out of respect and love for their fellow man instead of arguing about whether or not they're actually icons of terror? What if we actually saw our fellow human beings as people who were bought by the blood of Christ too? What if we actually saw them as people who were called sons and daughters of God? Wouldn't that radically transform the lunchtime conversations we have and the things we post on Facebook and the way we engage this conversation in our culture? It is absolutely horrific what we live in right now. Imagine. Imagine the opposing side. Imagine the opposing side, instead of destroying those statues and spitting on them and spray painting them, imagine the opposing side respectfully acknowledging the act of love being done for them as an extension of God's love to them. Wouldn't this be the kind of reconciliation be more God-honoring? Wouldn't it be more healing? Wouldn't it be more healthy than the horror we keep experiencing over and over and over again in our country? Wouldn't it be better if we argued about how much more we could do to reconcile with others? Digging our heels in over petty little things like freaking statues? Jesus went to the cross and we wore over statues. This is my hope, friends. My hope is that God would deeply speak this word to us. My hope is that this is the kind of reconciliation that we would experience now. I mean, this is the kind of reconciliation that you and I are going to experience in eternity, right? This is what's going to happen in heaven. This argument's not going to be there, right? So if that's something that you want in eternity, then that's something that you want now, something you'll fight for. And you and I have been reconciled to God. We're now called to live out of that same kind of reconciliation in the world that we live in. When I feel at odds with God, when I, when I believe that I'm an outcast, when I believe that I am hopeless or unlovable or unfixable, when I begin to work or to try to earn my relationship with God or to make my relationship with God good again, then he reminds me that it is by his grace alone that I am able to trust in him alone for the peace that my soul desires. Did you walk in here today with your soul not at peace? Was it, was it distraught? And be encouraged, my friends. God offers you grace that results in peace because you've been reconciled to your Father through the cross of Christ. This is a massive blessing. Can you imagine all this yet? Can you imagine the, the mansion, the mansion, the great big fat mansion of blessing that we all get to sit in? And we are blessed with grace and peace beyond our wildest dreams. Isn't that better motivation for you and I to live as God has called us? Isn't it, isn't it better to live like a, like a reconciled person who's actually been reconciled by someone else's work rather than working to attain the reconciliation that we can never achieve on our own? Isn't that like really good news? I can live in this reconciliation and somebody else want it for me. I don't have to work hard to get it anymore. I'm already reconciled. That's who I am. That's where we get to live. I take a look at this fourth and last category. We are blessed with a spiritual inheritance in verse 3. We are blessed with a spiritual inheritance. The idea of spiritual inheritance is super hard for us to grasp. This is probably the toughest point for me to try to make clear to you guys probably for me to even grasp too because it's so intangible it's not like just something you can just like hold in your hand right 
It's not like something you can just see. Like when we think of inheritance, when we think of physical property like big fat inheritance checks, those are fun, right? Anybody's ever got one of those? Physical belongings like homes, cars, real estate, grandma's fine china and her silverware, right? We think of tangible things that we can hold in our hands. And the reality is that we are so focused on the momentary, present pleasures of things in this life that we often doubt the blessings of our spiritual inheritance. This is what makes it difficult to have this conversation um, about the spiritual inheritance that we have in Christ. Um, One of the things I deeply believe, though, as I have pondered this and thought about this, I I deeply believe that if we could grab a hold of this seemingly intangible principle and the division and the war and the conflict within families, within the church, within our world, it would be radically transformed if we could grasp a hold of this. It's not just that we have an inheritance that is eternal and it's going to be given to us one day, like far off in the future. Um, It's really both, it's a both now and later, kind of like that candy, like that hard candy, both now and later, I think they're called. Uh, It's a now and later kind of inheritance. This is why the Apostle Paul says this. Look back at the text again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Did you catch the here and now? In other words, bless God, right? Bless God. He has blessed us. Not he is going to bless us. He has blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing you and I could possibly imagine. And he will continue to bless us in heaven in eternity. Every spiritual blessing. That word every is really important. Not just some spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing that you and I could have lavished upon us, God has given us. This here and now blessing, man, it flows from our future home in heaven. We live in it right here and right now. And we live in a mansion of gold and silver because of the work of Jesus. The place that we are headed to in the future, it is full of the riches of the presence of God's presence in ways that will surpass you and I's greatest dreams. I struggle with doubt. Anybody else with me in that? I struggle with doubt. Every morning I wake up and I doubt who I am and I doubt God's power. The tendency to doubt the spiritual inheritance that the Lord has given me because I doubt my spiritual inheritance. I I get really impatient. This is the outcome. I get really impatient. I get critical. I begin to desire to be seen as someone who is wise, really want to be accepted and loved. Sometimes that doubt then fuels those desires and it drives me to overwork myself. Have you ever find yourself there? Doubt that God will provide, so it's going to work yourself harder, right? Overwork myself. Um, sometimes I try to fix things that, that are not mine to fix, usually people. Sick. <laughs> it's God's job, not mine, right? Sometimes I seek to have all the answers. When God's the only one that's supposed to have all the answers, not me. As I seek approval from other people, I do that by trying to act in certain ways or say certain things I think will make people love me. Right? You ever do that? This is me doubting. In short, I struggle with doubting the blessings of my spiritual inheritance. 
But if you can identify with that, I want you to watch this video. It might help to uh, bring the point home some more. I remember my little niece ran up to me and told me, we learned about Jesus today. And I could tell by her smile she was so excited to learn about this man that she did not quite know yet, but she knew without a doubt for it to be true because after all, mommy said so. And that was the first time in my life that I looked into the eyes of a child and envied them because she had no idea of what it feels like to doubt. What it feels like to have your entire belief system overload with skepticism. To never know the day that you would finally be able to live beyond the shadow of a doubt. I've lived in its darkness for so long. It, it seems like I have all the right questions. But never enough answers and my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms. God. Every night I lay my head down to sleep, the city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage. Can you help me? Last year, my grandmother laid in a hospital bed like a bus stop waiting for God to come pick her up. I had never seen such pain and such confidence living in the same eyes when she told me, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know who I belong to, and I was so happy for her. And something inside of me wished that somehow before she passed away, she could pass down her confidence in God to me like an old family picture. I remember sitting in the back row of a cold sanctuary, crying because I desperately wanted what the preacher was saying to be true, but my doubts were preaching a sermon of their own and the streams of my tears turned into oceans of frustration. I remember sitting in a college classroom and the only thing being tested is my faith in God. The only thing passing is my hope. Me and a backpack full of fear and nowhere to go. No one to help me unpack. I sleep. I sleep, but I never rest. These lines around my eyes are not wrinkles. They are maps that show you the winding roads that lead to my pain. I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because honestly, I've considered quitting, but where will I go? Back? There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls. When I pray, I'm not questioning you. I just got questions. Don't leave me here. Don't, don't leave me. My child.
my child, when it seems like you have all the right questions, but never enough answers and your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms, I told you. Faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and turn mountains into open highways. Faith comes by my word, so maybe you've cuffed your ears. My child, don't be childish. But consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible. Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for before you doubt me, doubt your doubts? Doubt your doubts, and you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that I've walked from. <laughs> truth is, truth is, you know I'm here. You know my truth, and you're scared. Scared of what that means. Scared of what that should cost you. That one day, they will all laugh at you, laugh you right out of their classrooms, and scorn you out of their courtrooms. But my love serves as an eviction notice to anxiety. When they cast stones, my love casts out fear. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I've never started a work that I will not finish. I am the one. I am the one who will give you courage to stare death in the face and say, how dare you try to scare me? I know who I belong to. And when it feels like you are drowning, when it feels like you are drowning in a sea of your questions, just know I'm there. I'm there. Like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you and these hands that took holes will hold you. And when I told you that I would love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married. For better or for worse. Through sickness and in health, through faith and through questions, till death brings us closer, you are mine. You are mine, and I am yours, I promise. Wow. You are blessed beyond belief. You are blessed with a new calling, blessed with new titles blessed with grace and peace. You are blessed with a spiritual inheritance that will knock your socks off. And the question is, is, do you believe that? And will you now live like it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, man, this rich gem that we have in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for this message we are blessed beyond our wildest dreams.
pray, God, that you would impress these truths on our hearts. In the moments, in the minutes, in the hours, in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years to come, God, I pray that you would use your word to transform lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close our time together, we close in worship and prayer and communion. If you're here and you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've believed in him to save you, this meal is for you because you're bought by the blood. You've been healed by the broken body of Jesus at the cross. You've been reconciled. His grace has been poured out on you. You're at peace with your Father in heaven. You're part of a new family, if that's you. If you walked in here today and you were not yet a believer, you were still skeptical, still wondering, don't know about church, don't know about Jesus, don't know about that Bible, don't know about that preacher up there, cool, I get it. Maybe somewhere in the midst of all this, maybe God spoke to you and you recognized your sin and you recognized your brokenness and you recognized the inheritance that you have been offered in those moments, maybe you believed and trusted in Christ to save you. You became his son or his daughter. If that's you, then you are now part of the family too. We'd like to pray with you about that and we'd like to serve you your first communion as a member in the family. If you're here and you're still kind of in that place though where you're like, I don't know yet. Then, then don't come up and take communion. You come and get prayed for. Love to talk to you. Chop some things up. Share your skepticism. We're with you. We love you. Can't tell you how many years it took for me to get there. So we just wouldn't want you to eat a meal that has no significance or meaning for you. We don't want, we don't believe in dead religion. We don't believe in doing things just because everybody else is doing it. And so if that's you, you're here, you're like, man, I'm not a believer yet. It'd take a lot of courage to stay where you're at. Um, but we love you. Glad you're here. Like I said, love to pray with you. Love to talk to you if that's you. Thanks for letting me preach today. I love you guys. And the way that we do communion is that there'll be two of us near the front. We'll serve you the elements and pray for you if you have any needs. Um, so let's all stand and worship communion and prayer together. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.